0: If you'd open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. <clears throat> Let's bow for prayer. Father, as we continue our worship of you this morning, we want to reiterate, Father, to you how thankful we are for your love for us. To let you know, Lord, how much we appreciate that you are faithful to us. Even when we sin and do wrong, you are always there. That you will never abandon us, that you continue to provide for our needs. We are grateful, Father, indeed, that you do forgive us of our wrongdoing. Father, as we come to your word this morning, as always, we ask that you will bless our time in your word. We thank you, Father, that you've preserved your word for us. We ask, Lord, that you would help us in understanding and grasping those things that are written here by Paul. I pray, Lord, that our hearts would be encouraged, that our minds would be strengthened. That, Father, our comprehension of who we are in Christ would continue to grow deeper. That we would also experience a growing confidence in living life. Not because, Father, we are convinced of our own abilities or our own talents. Because, Father, we are convinced and assured of your presence in our life. That you are continuing to work in our life. That you are directing and planning every step that we take. And So, Father, we ask that you would help us to be cognizant of who you are every moment of the day. Father, we may walk and live in joy. And so, Father, now as we open your word, again, we ask that you would help us. And we do ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. As I read through the passage this morning, instead of just reading straight through it, I'm going to be making a few, I guess you would say, explanatory comments along the way um, as we get through this, because this will be a foundational passage for us. And I want us to think about it often as um, we move forward over the next several weeks. So beginning in verse 18, Paul writes, For the message of the cross is foolishness. Now if we were to stop there, that would be communicating something completely different than what Paul is intending to say. All right? Because we know that the cross is not foolishness. However, the message of the cross is foolishness to a group of certain individuals. It says, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing so that it immediately gives us an understanding of the unbeliever and the unbeliever's mind. When they hear the message of the cross, to them it's just foolishness. It doesn't mean necessarily that they're not understanding it, but to them it's foolishness. It just doesn't really make sense. they just like, you know, who believes that? That's just, you know, some, some would even write that it's just kind of an, some weird adolescent form of fantasy is how they might view it. So we want to keep in mind that we understand what Paul is saying here, that to the unbeliever, the message of the cross is foolishness. To them, it's foolishness. He says, but, or however, on the other hand, to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Amen. And that's why for the believer, to us, the message of the cross is, is, a, is a precious thing. You know, even though we know the world mocks Christianity, we often will say they, they just don't understand. They're not getting it, which is true. But for us... We embrace it. We love it because we recognize that this message, this this truth about Christ and what he's done for us has, was what has brought to us salvation. I am related to God because of this. And so then it says, for it is written, so he quotes from the Old Testament. God says, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. So as he quotes the Old Testament, it just tells us what God's going to do. When it comes to the context here, which he's talking about the message of salvation, God intends to destroy the wisdom of the wise. It doesn't mean that he's intending to make them stupid people. What he's intending to do is to take what they believe is wisdom, what they believe is knowledge, and he's going to show that it really isn't much of anything, that it falls apart, that it's not real truth, and he's going to bring it to nothing For all the understanding they think they have, they don't have it. They're not really seeing anything clearly. So he asks some rhetorical questions in verse 20. Where is the wise? You could could say it this way. Where is the wise of this world? Because God is pitting himself against the wisdom of the world. So where is the wise of the world? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world. So here he wants us to understand that God has done something here. God has taken the so-called wisdom, the so-called knowledge, what all the academics are pouring out, what the philosophers are pouring out, he has taken what they have, are giving us and he's revealed it as being really foolish. And he's shown it to be foolish. Then he says in 21, For since, in the wisdom of God... The world, through wisdom, did not know God. It pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. So verse 21, in God's wisdom, in all of God's great knowledge, he has decided that the world was not going to know him through worldly wisdom. That was not going to happen. It it can't happen. It's an impossibility. But God has decided, in his wisdom, he decided that. And it also pleased God then that through the foolishness, which again we go back to what he said earlier, he's not saying it is foolish, but to the unbelieving world this is foolishness. So God says, okay, fine. I'm going to take this foolishness and I'm going to use this to save those who believe. Then he breaks down humanity into a couple of groups, non-believing humanity. In verse 22 he says, where the Jews request a sign. They always want a sign. And we saw that through the life of Jesus. Jesus gave them one sign after another. And then what did they do? They asked for a sign. We want to to know that you you really are you really are the Son of God. Give us a sign. And of course, Jesus said, I've already given you so many signs. If another sign was given you, you wouldn't believe that either. So the Jews request a sign. The Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. So what he's saying is, look, he says, oh, we're not bringing a sign. We're not going into all this philosophy. We're just, it's the message of Christ. It's the message of the cross. Then he says about the message, to the Jews, it is a stumbling block. And to the Greeks, again, it is foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, called here is referring to those who have been called to salvation. God has brought them to himself. Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, because the foolishness of God, or you could read it this way, because the so-called foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. So that, this is the basis for what we're going to talk about over the next couple of weeks, because in the, in the culture we live in, and this is not a new thing, but in the culture that we live in, it is the unbelieving world that is, I guess, in essence, pretending that they're the smart ones. They've got it together. Academics is on their side. Philosophy is on their side. The Christians, they're just fools. They're intellectual midgets. They don't know what they're talking about. They believe in weird things. They're, they're, they're superstitious. They believe in fantasy world. And they, they continue to mock Christianity. That's the main, one of the main tools that the unbelieving world uses to uh, downgrade Christianity is by mocking it's not by evidence it's not by intellectualism they will use things that sound intellectual but the idea is to mock us so if they can make fun of us then maybe they can perhaps keep others from believing or listening to the message of Jesus Christ with all that under our belt I want us to unpack how all of this relates to the world today The way that we think, the way that we reason, the way we understand truth and the culture and the world in which we live in. Keep in mind that to become a Christian does not mean that we renounce reason. That is what the world wants us to believe. There are many things the world wants us to believe. Many things the world, in a sense, wants to assume to be true. Or they pretend that are true. And one of them is that if you become a Christian, then you stop thinking. That if you become a Christian, you're putting reason behind you. You know, they, the world defines faith as believing in things that have no evidence. But that is not how the Bible describes faith, but that's what the world says. The world, the world says that we are believing things that really couldn't be true, that we're only believing things to make us feel better. It's, it's an emotional crutch to help us to get through difficult times because we're still weak or, or superstitious. That's why you've, I've mentioned this before, that when I pray for, it's not they're not the only ones that do this, Uh, You know, older people go to the doctors more and more, but my prayer is that when anyone gets cancer or gets some kind of a disease, not only am I praying for them and perhaps that God would heal them, but I pray that when they come in contact with doctors and nurses and other other individuals in the waiting room, my prayer is that not only will the others see that this individual draws strength from their faith in Christ, but I, I also pray that the others will not view it as only being, well, isn't that sweet? That, you know, older people or these, they they need a crutch. So whatever works for you. What I pray is that people realize that what you and I possess is a vibrant, living, reasonable, rational, logical faith in Christ. And that it gives to us a very real sense of strength, very real strength that it's not just some, something we use just to kind of get us through some hard times because we're too dumb to know any better. And so we must pray for that because that's how the world views us and that's the assumptions that the world goes by. So again, to become a Christian doesn't mean that we renounce reason. In fact, I believe on the contrary, it enables us to become truly rational. Augustine uh, was one who said at the, very heart, at the very heart of his thinking is the conviction that Christian faith alone enables one to be rational. A man must believe in order to understand. In other words, to understand the world as it is, you need to believe in God first. It's not the idea that you're believing in God and there's no evidence that you just kind of move in that direction. We're going to explain that along the way. But it's not that we seek to understand on our own first and then as we understand the world with our great reasoning, we then end up believing in Christ. No, it's the other way around. How one sees the world and interprets reality is determined by his presuppositions. We use that word a a great deal at times. Everyone has presuppositions. Atheists, agnostics, religious people, Christians all have presuppositions. Presuppositions are the lens in which we interpret the world. They are the basic assumptions that we take for granted. Basic assumptions are preconceived ideas that are very rarely challenged, and we all have them. Like you talk to an individual, you may hear some of their presuppositions in certain statements. Someone may say, let's say we're talking about, let's say we're talking about some neighborhood kid who seems to be involved in a gang. And one individual says, Well, you know, I know they have trouble, but you know, deep down inside, we're all good. That's a presupposition. It's also wrong. All right? We are not all good. In fact, no one is good. That's, that's what God says. I believe that. All right? No one, no one is good. So this, this presupposition comes out. That needs to be challenged. And of course we have presuppositions about many things. Presuppositions determine what you believe. They also determine how you look at life. And most people are unconscious of them. They're just unaware of what they are. And there are times that we need to bring that to light so when it comes to Christian theism or Christianity or the truth of Christianity, it is absolutely necessary. In fact, I would say that the truth of Christianity is absolutely necessary and it is impossible for Christianity not to be true. And I believe that we can establish that, that it is impossible for Christianity not to be true. Now, we do keep, we need to keep in mind that we are never to attempt to force conversions to Christ. Most of us know that. We can't force someone, uh, you know, into a little building and lock the doors so we can preach to them. Uh, that doesn't mean that we don't say things forcefully, but you know, we don't put chains on the doors. In fact, uh, my uh, Cindy's brother one time uh, attended a church in Texas. Won't tell you which one, but when the service began, they literally chained the doors which is illegal, by the way. I think that would break most fire codes in every state of the Union. However, they chained the door shut so no one could leave. So, so just take note that if you're ever in Texas, check to see if there's chains in the back of the, of the hall there. Uh, beating someone into submission intellectually or physically is sinful, and it also demonstrates a lack of trust in the sovereign work of God in the heart of the lost. So we should be aggressive with the truth. We should be aggressive with love and aggressive with kindness. We can be zealous and effective in our witness without being bombastic and rude. The word wisdom is used a great deal in that passage that I read. Let me give you a very simple definition of the word that is used there for wisdom. The word wisdom describes someone who is just simply a lover of wisdom. That's it. We are to petition God for wisdom. We are to search the scriptures for wisdom. We are to study to become wise unto salvation. God's word reveals the true philosophy. So true knowledge, true wisdom comes from God. So pursuing wisdom is not a bad thing. We're commanded to do that, and we are to do that. Many Christians, though, as a result of that have misunderstood. Let me read to you Colossians chapter two verse eight. Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit, according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. From the Amplified, it reads this way. See to it that no one carries you off as spoil or makes you yourselves captive by his so-called philosophy and intellectualism and vain deceit, which are idle fancies and plain nonsense, following human tradition, which is men's ideas of the material rather than the spiritual world. Just crude notions following the rudimentary and elemental teachings of the universe and disregarding the teachings of Christ Christ who is the Messiah. So it is not sinful for Christians to study or read philosophy. What he tells us here is beware, there's a warning, of philosophy that is what? According to the tradition of men. The warning here is be careful of the empty deceit that is inherent in humanistic philosophy. But he's not telling us not to pursue these things, We are to pursue these things in the proper way, as we've already said, that the Word of God tells us to seek and ask God for wisdom, to study the Word of God for wisdom, and to seek to base your wisdom on the teachings of the Word of God. There is overwhelming evidence that God does exist, but remember that evidence alone is not going to convert a pagan to a saint. In fact, we may sit and talk about the fact that there are 300 messianic prophecies that were fulfilled by Jesus Christ. That is astounding. And to me, that is very convincing. The historical and the biblical testimony concerning the resurrection of Christ is convincing to me as well. It's convincing to other believers. However, you need to remember that outside of the faith, those individuals have a different set of presuppositions and this leads to problems when we try to just give them evidence and say, well, here's the evidence you should believe. We sometimes are thinking, man, with all this evidence, how in the world do they not see the truth? It's because of the presuppositions. Remember that when we pray for non-believers, there are times we use certain kinds of phrasing. And some of the phrasing that we use helps us to understand what we actually understand about the unbeliever. And what we pray is that God would what? Take the blinders off their eyes. We're not asking God to delude them. We're not asking God to brainwash them. We're asking God to free them from the blinders of their own sin, from their own presuppositions. We ask that God would open their heart. Why? Because man is negatively resistant to the message of Christ. So we're asking God to sovereignly work in their life before they believe in the gospel because all these things are preventing them from believing in the gospel. If God doesn't work in their life first, there's just salvation isn't going to happen. So we ask God to open the eyes of the blind so they can really see the gospel, so they can recognize the truth of it, because left on their own, they don't. Now follow me on this. I will probably say this again later, and hopefully it will mean more to you later than it does now but God when I say God that's the God of the Bible God is the precondition for every single argument a human being makes on any subject God is the precondition for all proof he is the precondition for evidence and for reason it is impossible for God not to exist because God is the precondition for all intelligent exchanges I'm going to explain that a little more along the way, and hopefully hopefully there'll be an aha moment. And you go, oh, that makes a lot of sense. Right now, some of you are like, "Eh, I guess it's true. But anyway, here's the thing. We use logic in our questions. When we question anything, but even when it comes to, to God or the things of God, we use logic in our questions. We use logic in our doubts. By using logic, we are actually affirming that God lives. Christianity is the only worldview that provides human reason a foundation for its proper function. And I'll explain that along the way. In other words, what what people fail to realize is by thinking logically and asking logical questions, that the very act of doing that is proving that God really does exist. Because if you take their worldview, which would be an anti-Christian worldview, whatever it is, whatever that worldview is, they cannot explain that lo- how logic even exists. We're able to explain how logic exists. We've been created by an intelligent, logical God. We are made in His image. Part of being made in the image of God is our ability to think. Yes, our ability to think has been marred by sin, absolutely. But our ability to think, to be logical, is not just a gift from God. It is part and parcel in being created in his image. He has created us to be rational, logical beings. So therefore, whenever we use logic, we are affirming that God lives. So let me try to unpack this a little more. When you talk with an unbeliever, remember this. We are not to swap evidence with them. We need to be firm. We need to be gracious. We need to attack, I believe, their assumed starting points or their presuppositions. We need to attack those things. We must use the truth from the Word of God to dislodge the unbeliever from their own self-deception and their delusions. And I think we do this by demonstrating what's called the self-defeating nature of their presuppositions. If you ever listen to Ravi Zacharias, you'll hear him often talk about in his exchanges with individuals... That he will, at some point in the exchange, point out to them that what they just said can't be true based on what they had just previously said. That if what they had previously said was true, then they couldn't say that. And we'll get to that in just a few moments. But that's important to remember, that they're self-defeating. What we believe is not self-defeating. In other words, remember that the Word of God does have something to say about every aspect of life. And what we're dealing with here, this the wisdom of God and how the world views the message of the Christ as being the foolishness of God and how the wisdom of God has caused the wisdom of the world to be foolishness and how God has destroyed it. That's what we're going to look at so we can see the futility of man and the futility of his heart. Again, the unbeliever, the skeptic, the one who says they don't believe that God exists or there is no God, They really, by their, again, their worldview, the way they understand the world, they cannot explain where anything comes from. They cannot explain where life comes from, where thought comes from, where logic comes from, where true love comes from. They can't explain anything. Let me give you an example of that. So you ask the individual, let's talk about love. Where did love come from? What is love? Is love just a physical action? If grandma pinches the cheeks of her grandkids and kisses her husband when he goes to work, is that love? Well, no, not necessarily. A woman can do all of that while she's plotting to murder them. Now, I know that sounds kind of funny, but have you ever watched 2020? Have you ever watched 48 hours investigative reports? It happens a great deal. The non-Christian cannot give an answer as to what love is or where it comes from That is grounded in unchanging truth. And that's what we possess with Christ. That's what we possess with the Bible. It is unchanging. We we know more now as a believer than we knew five years ago. But it's not because that's changed. We've changed. Our understanding of it has changed. What we are thinking about now as Christians is what Christians were thinking about in 300 A.D. It may be more developed But it's not more developed because of new information, because the Bible is the same. It's incredible the way that believers have been able to to advance knowledge and understanding based on the same book, on the same words that the early church had. Now you might be thinking that you you may know some non-believers who are able to explain love, who can answer those questions about love. But what I'm going to tell you is this, is they can only answer that question if they borrow from Christian thought. Outside of the Bible, they cannot answer that question. It cannot be done. And I will show you that along the way. We're not just going to make those pronouncements. All right? But they must borrow from Christianity. So then how do they answer those questions about love without borrowing from biblical ideas or ideals? Based on whatever religion or philosophy of life or worldview they hold, again, they cannot give an accurate or a correct or a logically consistent answer. You see, most of the world does not like to evaluate their own worldview and ask difficult questions. I've told you before, that's one of the reasons why the world gets so angry at Christians. When we dare to ask certain questions, you have a panel. Let's say there's a talk show, which has happened before. And you have a talk show on TV and you have different individuals representing different religions. It's always the Christian guy who says, but how do you know that's true? He's always the guy that's doing that. To whoever's speaking, how do you know that's true? And oftentimes, the one who's hosting the group is going to get upset. Well, I don't don't think we need to go there. Well, why not? This is pretty important stuff. Now, there are several reasons why the world is that way. But in the end, the world doesn't like us to ask that question because I think the world, in a sense, kind of already knows where that's going to go. And even though they may not know any of the claims of Christianity, they know that whatever it is that they are believing in cannot stand up to the scrutiny. It can't. Because what's going to be revealed is the internal flaws, meaning it's going to, eventually it's going to contradict itself and reveal that it can't be true. And that's why we proclaim, Christians are the ones who are always proclaiming to others, examine our faith, examine the word of God, show us where the errors are. Now the world at times wants to say that that is just nothing but arrogance, but we still then say, okay, maybe we are saying it in an arrogant way, we'll try to say it as humbly as we can, please can you show me where we're wrong? And the world can't do that. The world desperately wants to do that they are unable to in fact what the bible says again god tells us why this is going on they suppress the truth they they go to great efforts using all of their strength because they know that god exists that's what we need to remember our presupposition is based on what the word of god has given to us what god has revealed to us and god has told us that every single individual in the world who's alive today actually knows that God exists. I don't care what they say. They know that he exists. I don't think God's a liar. God, Everything God says is true. So no matter how loudly they proclaim they are an atheist, they're, they're deluding themselves. They don't actually believe that. In fact, most of them, maybe all of them, but most of them don't want to be intellectually honest And the more they suppress the truth, the more they embrace lies and inconsistencies. It is unfathomable to imagine any scientist, academic, scholar, or philosopher in the 1950s who would have given any credence to any biologist who said, well, I cannot explain exactly where life came from, but I know that God doesn't exist I guess what took place was aliens came and deposited some crystals in a pond of murky water, and that's where life got its start. That individual would have been laughed out of whatever school or group he was involved in. But one of the most preeminent biologists in the world today is exactly what he says. That's what Dawkins says. That's what he ends up with. That's just absurd. But what does the Bible tell us? The more they suppress the truth, the more they embrace lies and inconsistencies. Romans 1, beginning of verse 18. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness because what may be known of God is manifest in them for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools. We continue to come back to Romans 1 because it gives to us the explanation as to where the world is. Do not allow yourself to begin to somehow sympathize that there are unbelievers who just, they just don't know any better. They do know better. What God says here is not just for the academic. This is not just for individuals who have an IQ over a certain number. This is about every single individual who's ever been born, who has been born recently, and who ever will be born. This is true for all of them. Again, in the Amplified, which amplifies what he's saying, it says, For God's holy wrath and indignation are revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who in their wickedness repress and hinder the truth and make it inoperative. For that which is known about God is evident to them and made plain in their inner consciousness, because God himself has shown it to them. For ever since the creation of the world, which is when man came along, by the way, for ever since the creation of the world, his invisible nature and attributes, that is, his eternal power and divinity, have been made intelligible and clearly discernible in and through the things that have been made, his handiworks, so that men are without excuse altogether, without any defense or justification, because when they knew and recognized him as God, They did not honor and glorify him as God or give him thanks, but instead they became futile and godless in their thinking with vain imaginings, foolish reasoning, and stupid speculations. And their senseless minds were darkened. And then, claiming to be wise, they became fools. In other words, professing to be smart, they made simpletons of themselves. C.S. Lewis said, atheism is too simple. If the whole universe has no meaning then we should never have found out that it has no meaning. Madeline O'Hara, some of you are familiar with that name, She was she's famous because she was the one that we will say that in history was highly responsible for ensuring that prayer, public prayer in public schools was taken out and almost in a sense made illegal. illegal. That's, that's her claim to fame, so to speak. She's had kind of a weird life, to say the least, but anyway. There was a particular night where she said that she consecrated herself, consecrated her life, dedicated her life to the faith of atheism. And when she did that, she shook her fist at the sky, and she declared in a loud voice, I do not believe in you. Well, you're laughing because you already know that there's a question we should, we should ask, and that is this. If God did not exist, who was she shaking her fist at? That just makes no sense. She's she's immediately, by her actions, denying what she's trying to affirm. Probe a little further. Talk to an agnostic. They may say this. Nobody can know anything about God. Well, there's a lot of difficulty with that statement. It's wrong. But actually, what's wrong about that statement is, well, you know that about God. To make the statement, you can know nothing about God, is to know something about God. In fact, what you're saying is, he is unknowable. In fact, if you think about it, they have a very elaborate theology that they're holding on to, because their system is asserting that we, and then we cannot know that God is omnipotent, we can't know that God is omnipresent, we cannot know that God is loving, just, or sovereign. They are also asserting that God has not revealed himself to humanity. This then implies that God is either too weak in power or too indifferent towards us, the ones he says he cares about, and so that is claiming a great deal about God. It's a very full theology, so to speak. The agnostic, then, making their claim is self-deceived. He knows God exists, he just doesn't like him. Buddhism, Hinduism, they don't have any immediate worldly or eternal good news, the ultimate goal of Buddhism is to escape into nirvana and lose yourself. Your purpose, then, is to become nothing. Pondering and believing, that that can only bring despair and weaken your moral fortitude. In fact, you would find it difficult to explain why anything matters. Why what you do matters or why you matter. If the goal is to become nothing, what does it matter? Hinduism teaches that man's goal is to break the karmic cycle, And become one small drop of water that falls into the great ocean of God. So the central doctrine of reincarnation cannot supply hope. Its goal is for everyone to dissolve into oneness. Just fall into the ocean of being. You lose your personality, you lose meaning, you lose your personhood, you lose your family, and you lose your soul. The ultimate purpose then of Eastern religion is, you have no purpose. That is what its sole purpose is. That is what it is teaching. Our ultimate purpose is to be in Christ and to be the person he created us to be. The only philosophy, the only religion out there that explains and holds up the personhood of the individual, the personality that we hold so dear. When we we watch our or other little children grow up, one of the things that endears us to them is not just because they're these little small people running around, what endears us to them is when we see what? Their personalities. And to see how they act and what they do and what they say and the way they do things. And to watch them and their personalities grow up. What does Buddhism have to do with that? It doesn't really matter. The whole goal is to be nothing. In fact, they would. if you're going to be a strict Buddhist, you, you would not really be in favor of the you know, pushing of, of personality and personhood. To be your own man or your own woman is, is, is a foreign concept. The idea is for all of us to be the same and, and, and to, to move into this one direction. To, to you know, they, Some will say that you're entering into bliss, but I'm always wondering how can it be blissful if it's nothing? Because being blissful is something. But anyway, uh, nonetheless, our ultimate purpose is to be who we are in Christ as the person he created. So if you don't believe in Christ, it is not because there's not enough evidence. It's always because you don't want to believe in Christ. But you still have to answer the same questions. Can you make sense of your world without borrowing from the Bible that you say you don't believe in? How do you account and make sense of your life if there is no Christianity? How do you answer these questions? Why were you born? Why are you here? What were you meant to do? How do you explain pain? How do you explain good? What is love? Where does love come from? How do you deal with guilt? How do you deal with the true moral guilt you, f- you feel because of the wrong you have done? So if you do not believe in Christ, those are very important questions. How would you answer them? I think that you will find, that anyone will find, if you try to answer those questions, not using any truth from the Scripture, you will find yourself hopelessly lost you will find that there are no answers. Those answers truly are found in the person of Christ. You see, the message of the cross, though it is simple, is not simplistic. It really does have the answer for every aspect of life. It does give to us great meaning. It is the wisdom of God, though it appears to be just foolishness to the world. We're going to examine that a little more in the next couple of weeks so you can really grasp the greatness of the depth of the message of Christ. So then when you reread these words here in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, they will then begin to leap off the page. You will begin to automatically shake your head in agreement because you will recognize the, the profound truths of what Paul is saying. And we can then move away from being enamored with just those who seem to be intellectual, who seem to have answers, who talk so well, but are just trying to find ways to justify their unbelief in what they know to actually be true. It is the stupidity of man. In Romans, it does say this at the end. It says, professing to be wise, they became fools. Just so you know, the word for fool there is where we get our word moron from. At one time, I was a moron, and I came to know Christ. Thank goodness. Now, I'm not advocating that you call all your unbelieving friends and tell them you learned in church today that they're really a moron. That's not an effective evangelistic tool. But you will know in your mind, as you listen to them speak, they are truly moronic, and they need the help of God. And what we give them, what Paul mentions there in Corinthians is this. Even though the world sees the message of the cross as foolishness, notice what Paul says. But we preach Christ. He doesn't turn to some other intellectual way to do anything, he declares the message of the truth. And that is the message that we must live out and declare to those who are in such a desperate need of Christ. Let's pray. Father in heaven, again, we thank you for your grace and kindness. We thank you, Father, for your majesty. We know, Lord, that your mind is way beyond our mind. Your intellect, your understanding, your wisdom is, is infinite. And ours is not only finite, it is infinitesimally small compared to your greatness. But, Father, you've given us the knowledge of you. You've given us the knowledge packaged in a way that we can, despite our level of intelligence, can understand and grasp. That is truly the mark of genius to be able to do that. And you've done that, Father, because you love us and because you care for us. And so, Father, we pray that as believers that we will be strengthened and encouraged by all of this. And as always, Father, we pray for those who do not yet know Christ. We pray, Lord, that you would awaken them to the inconsistencies in the way they think and the way they live. We pray, Lord, they would become despondent as they recognize the inconsistencies in the world around them. We pray, Lord, you would help them to recognize the true foolishness that is out there and how it is that the foolishness of the methods of Christ just puts to death and destroys the wisdom of man, that they would believe in Christ. So, Father, we are grateful for your grace in our life and your goodness. And we do thank you and ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.